0: Hello and welcome back to We Are The University, the podcast about Cambridge University and the people who make this place so unique. I'm your host Nick Safel and on this episode we speak to Trinity Hall alumnus Waheed Aryan, the creator of Aryan Teleheal, a telemedicine charity that uses smartphones to connect medics from around the world with medics in war-torn countries. Waheed tells us about his experiences of growing up in Afghanistan, escaping civil war learning English through the BBC World Service and arriving in the UK at 15 with dreams of studying medicine at Cambridge. I'm joined in the studio by my colleague Karis. Karis has written a great story about Waheed that you can find on all of the university's social channels. In the story you can also watch a short film about Teleheal and see how Teleheal works.
1: I was born in Kabul, Afghanistan and spent 15 years of my life in the beginning uh, in Afghanistan mainly, but three is in refugee camp. Uh, and I can tell you that Afghanistan, like millions of other people would say this, is a very beautiful country. And that beauty is not just in Kabul, but in every province that you go to, uh, faraway areas, the mountains that you see, uh, the beauty of the, the nature, uh, and also the beauty lies uh, in inside the people. Beyond the generosity of the people in hospitality, uh, when you stroll through streets, uh, you can actually smell uh, all that tasty food coming from the small restaurants that are scattered throughout the country. Uh, And I I think about it all the time. I remember it all the time. And then when you're walking along the street, if it's summer, then you see the smell of of the beautiful flowers, even if they're wild. But you can actually sense them and feel them. If it's winter, you can actually step on the snow and you can see the beauty of the whole city or the province covered or the mountains. Um, So everywhere, the beauty is um, still there.
0: Do you have a sort of favorite sort of childhood memory that sort of encapsulates all that sound and smells
1: and sights and everything? So the first five years um, growing up in Kabul City, my uh, mother used to take us to a a little park in uh, Sharanau. That's the area where we used to live, uh, although it didn't have the swings that we see here in the parks, the only um, the old-style metals that we could play with. Yeah. But the memory is so vivid, um, the sun shining through the leaves of the trees, and then even though we, we didn't have the, um, the flooring that we were accustomed to here. But again, playing, that, that was something very special. But unfortunately, those days um, were not many because the rest of the time we had to hide in cellars from the daily rockets and the bombs and the shellings. And that was a a common theme that was going.
0: When did the decision get made to sort of try and leave um, Afghanistan?
1: So age five, when my parents, they couldn't be together because my father had fled the military service and the situation was getting worse and worse every day, they finally decided that we had to flee, flee the country. So we... Along with um, about 20 other families, we had to go through a different route. We couldn't go through the Khyber Pass or the Khyber Pass, the usual route, because the borders were closed. They were not open to families. We had to find an alternative way. And the uh, alternative way was called Tarimangal, uh, a mountainous area. Uh, and th- that journey took us about seven days, seven nights on donkeys and horses uh, at a caravan of 20 families mm. that were tied together. And we had to take that journey or do that journey at night time. Because during mm. the day, any activity that was seen on the ground, uh, which would have been confused with uh, Mujahideen bringing on the weapon, then the Soviet helicopter jets, um, the helicopters, the jets, and the tanks, would actually kill anybody they could, they could see uh, along the way. So were you doing this purely in the dark? Was it lit up at all, or you just... So, uh, again, that's when the uh, natural beauty of Afghanistan comes in. That, oh, the uh, the, moon, moonlight, the right. moonlight was absolutely uh, still vivid in my mind. The The, the route was very dangerous because yeah. we were going on mountains of in course. the dark uh, on horses. The men, even, they were walking. It was mainly children and, and women uh, on donkeys and the horses. We had a bit of uh, old bread with a bit of sugar with us, uh, so no, no water. And as soon as the, the daylight would come in, we had to stop. Right. somewhere and uh, we did come uh, and uh, the attack three times miraculously we survived those attacks who, who did um, at this point the attack was once we were spotted during the day right uh, one day when my parents just wanted to explore uh, the local village yeah. where we had stopped early in the morning just to find some rest to see if we can hide somewhere and sleep we were spotted by one of the spy helicopters right. and then within minutes the jets uh, arrived And they um, bombarded us from every direction the families the women and children they were hiding under the trees it was my father and i who uh, went to explore that little village okay and we were caught in that fire so
0: was it a, a nearby radius then how close was that getting to you then
1: so we, we were actually, um, as soon as my father s- saw that there was a spy helicopter, he knew I was coming, so yeah. he took me in his arms. Like he ran towards uh, the village as fast as he could. Because right. he knew he, we only had minutes, yeah. a couple of minutes or so, before the jets arrived to attack us. And then he found uh, a room in one of the houses uh, where there was an oven on the floor. He hid me in that oven, oh. uh, and that oven usually is used in those villages for baking bread. Baking bread. bread. Okay. So that's um, miraculously we survived and that attack went on for uh, many minutes. Yeah. Um, and all I can remember from that journey is just uh, from, from that attack was the dust coming from every direction. Um, but we survived that and further two ala- attacks along the way until we finally made it to a refugee camp in Peshawar in Pakistan.
2: And can you tell us about life in the camp as
1: well? So initially we were uh, happy because we, we felt safe. Uh, There were no attacks, but we soon realized that um, the conditions were not really humane. Uh, We as a family of 10, um, we were living in one muddy room with uh, temperatures rising up to 45 degrees with one fan, uh, a few pillows. Uh, We were only surviving on the Russians that were available for the refugees locally. So unfortunately, they were not good conditions at all. And within days, myself, along with my family members, we contracted malaria. Uh, And then within uh, three months, um, I uh, contracted tuberculosis. Uh, And then my whole life within that refugee camp was consumed, fighting it, uh, and then recovering from it was the end from uh, TB.
2: And and how long were you in the camp?
1: We were in the camp for three years.
2: Three years, Mm. wow. And what was the medical care like in the
1: camp? So there was no standard medical care. Unfortunately, there were some clinics, um, two or three clinics. The the clinic that I used to visit was overcrowded because so many people would come in with many diseases, many illnesses there. Uh, uh, But when uh, I saw my doctor, he was still uh, looking. um, He was smiling at patients. He was still happy. Mm. And that's uh, the first time when i realized that w- what's wrong with him and why is he smiling but then i saw that it's actually he found it extremely rewarding to to be helping all these people uh, so i became friends with him and then he uh, gave me a stethoscope an old stethoscope and an old textbook yeah to keep looking at the pictures and because i didn't have any toys to play with so they became my toys okay uh, my father he also bought um some syringes, plastic syringes, uh, that I could um, inject boiled water into his arm from time to time, just to <laughs> <laughs> feel like a doctor. Right. Uh, of course, his arm would turn uh, all red and blue. I can't <laughs> imagine. That. I, I wouldn't uh, allow it <laughs> myself now, but uh, yeah. he was a brave man. <laughs> Again, a way just shows that uh, how, in in his own ways, he was trying to teach me yeah. that never to let go of your dream, to follow your dream, and persist with it
2: and um, can you tell us about um, about how you arrived in the UK and how that decision Mm -hmm. came about was there a point in your family that your parents thought enough is enough
1: so age 15 when uh, the Taliban were in power in 1999 I think that's when my parents realized that there was never any safety in the Mm -hmm. country and there was uh, never any future and I was so determined to uh, become a doctor and to mm-hmm. do something with my life and there were no opportunities and I was at an age that they could let go of me and that's when they said okay we will let you go yeah uh, so they they uh, made the arrangements and after about three months I landed in the UK on my own age 15 on a uh, Portobello Road in London uh, with a family friend for a week, and then I had to soon f- figure out things on my own. Uh, although it can be very daunting reflecting back on that situation, but I was very excited. Uh, I was very happy because, first of all, I was uh, I came to a place where there was safety for the first yeah, time. Uh, and I was also uh, excited to see all the opportunities in front of me yeah. that I couldn't wait to start. But I don't know how, yeah. or from where. Uh, and I asked some people around me, some uh, other refugees, you know, what to do, what not to do, and there were some various advice given to me. And most say that, well, given your background, the lack of education, I think you should just stick to labour work, whatever you can do, whether to work in a uh, in a chicken shop or become a taxi driver, which was absolutely fine, and they are really hardworking jobs. Yeah, but they were not actually what my aims were.
0: And you just step you. Did you just keep to your goals then, the, the, the mindset you had that anything was possible? How did you focus from that point?
1: So I did obviously listen to them, uh, and I took their advice to the extent that I could use those as stepping stone to the okay. next stage. Uh, but I always kept my dream, and that dream was to become a doctor. I was still um, figuring out things. I didn't know how to do it, yeah. but I was very confident that one day I would become a doctor, uh, but not only to become a doctor, but to be able to help back uh, in areas like Afghanistan and conflict zones where people need uh, a lot of help.
2: How did you manage to get enough money to get by and how did you study? So
1: when I came, um, I came with about $100 in my pocket. Uh, and then within a week, I found uh, a job um, on edge of a Road uh, as a salesman. I was going from shop to shop and just asking for jobs. And I think it was the fourth or fifth shop. The the owner was there and he asked me um, what I could do. I said, "Well, I could sell." And he said, "Could you? Do you speak any other languages?" I said, "Yes, I speak Farsi, Dari, and I could speak a a bit of um, um, Arabic and Hindi." And said, "Well, that will do on Edge of Road because that's the area of uh, (laughs) tourists." Of course. Yeah. Uh, So they said, "When can you start?" I said, "Uh, "I can start now," Uh, and I started immediately. So that was the beginning of my uh working days yeah. uh, in the uk and money from that and other jobs that i did yeah. they paid for my own expenses um, as well as for the expenses of um, my younger brother who came in a year later but also i kept sending money back home to support my family members but along the way uh, soon after that uh, i started self-reading english uh, i knew i had to improve my english yeah. uh, i had to learn it from the scratch actually properly
0: what did you uh, use sorry what did you use to learn English then
1: I found some GCC books right Uh, yes some science and English GCC books and I still studied Okay, Um, so I going to work coming back from work using my any off time when even customers were not there I had my book just hidden uh, under the uh, in in the book uh, in in the uh, shop so I used any opportunity for, for the first... In 1999 till 2001, I, I worked extremely hard. Okay. I studied extremely hard. And 2001 was when I went to um, Westminster Kingsway College. Right. Um, and then I sat the pre-A-level test. Okay. I just wanted to skip GCCs, go I and read them on my own. And I okay. said, well, I, yeah. I could do the A-levels. <laughs> uh, and I actually passed that test borderline. And they were still not sure if I could do it. Right. Um, but I reassured them that, yes, I, I told them, yes, I've done this all back home. And you know, I, I, I lied. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> by, by yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just wanted to appear confident because I so badly wanted to start A-levels and then go to university. Yeah. So they let me do A-levels. Um, and because I, I had to prove a point in sort of three, I took five A-levels. Um, and I had to spread between colleges because I had to fit in working during the day with it yeah. so I was doing some in the evening and I was doing others during the day in three different colleges which was Hammersmith, Kingsway, Maideville, Okay. Uh, all these colleges.
2: Wow, and did you have, was there um, a teacher that, that was particularly inspirational from those colleges or, or, or did that inspiration really have to come from inside at that point?
1: We teachers were supporting they were very friendly but they were not sure of me in the beginning right uh, in a way probably i was an anomaly that i didn't have much paperwork in terms of to prove my education but after the first year when i i put in so much hard work and the results came in that um, i got A's, then they started noticing more and then i went to them and i said um, i want to apply to cambridge What was the uh, inspiration? that was out of nowhere right. and Had you been to Cambridge before? Uh, Yes. Uh, So that was very interesting. Um, I'd never thought of applying to Cambridge. Uh, Probably like many other students, uh, I was afraid to apply to Cambridge. But then one day I was sitting um, with a friend and somebody who'd just graduated from Cambridge. And he said, well, you should visit Cambridge. I said, oh, no, that's too difficult to get into. I said, like, why don't you come with me? I'm packing my bags and then I'll show you around. So I said, "Okay, well, Cambridge is a beautiful city. I'd love to visit, but I never intended to apply. And okay. then when I came in, I saw that all the students are normal students, yeah. and they come in from uh, various backgrounds, you know, various colors. Um, so they stigma the kind of the myth that all existed in my mind, probably that existed in the mind of many other people, that immediately that went away. Uh, and I really seriously thought of applying. But then, of course, came in my own um, resilience into it that um, I set my mind, I want to apply, I will do it. Then I searched the open days. um, I came on a couple of open days to Cambridge. Uh, Fortunately, Trinity Hall College was one of them. I went to a few others as well, and they were all very friendly. Uh, Cambridge, uh, when I came to Trinity Hall, I started discussing applying for Cambridge with the uh, director of um, medicine at the time. Uh, and he answered the questions uh, with a lot of humility and a lot of uh, very very welcoming manner and that was it for me i said well i am applying to cambridge and i would certainly advise many other people who have any kind of ideas or thinking without visiting cambridge or without having been to any of the open days just to come and see for yourself um it's just normal Cause it must university. be university. Yeah. It is a normal university, but it must be quite <laughs>
0: yeah. intimidating. Mm. If you've never say, your parents haven't been to university mm. before to be, uh, to be over here and trying to get some, you know, inspiration or trying to get some advice, it must be quite difficult to try and think of going, especially to Cambridge. It must be quite difficult to think about that. How did you go mm. through that? Go through that process?
1: Well, my parents, I told them that I wanted to apply for medicine, uh, Pretty much that was it. Uh, and they, <laughs> they, they were very happy with my decision. Yeah. Convincing my tutors to support me to apply to Cambridge was a bit difficult. Okay, Because they uh, unfortunately had the myth as well, that, or the thinking that only certain people can apply to Cambridge. And I think that's wrong. Um, tutors, wherever they are, uh, they should just, um, maybe that thinking has changed now, but they should just support students to apply. Uh, yeah. Everybody has an equal chance. Yeah. Of course, um, if they have got the relevant uh, grades, grades and yeah. the, the aptitude for it. But then after the first year, they saw that I could do it. And they were still a bit hesitant. They said, oh, nobody had applied to, to Cambridge from our colleges. And I said, well, I'll be the first to do it. <laughs> I went yeah. yeah. for them. Uh, and then I all I asked from them was just, can you write me a statement? And they said, yeah, we can do that for you. Uh, and they... Um, uh, Provided me with a supporting statement, and I did my own application. Uh, I sat the test, and I came to the interview. I was invited for an interview, which was quite interesting as well. When I came to the interview, I didn't even know how to do my right. Uh and I <laughs> asked, minor things. Uh, I asked one of the uh, parents of another student to help me with that. Uh, and then after the interview, um, the interview went. Uh, nobody knew how it would go, like any other interview, then... Um, a couple of months later, or, or I heard back and said that um, uh, I have been given a place at Cambridge. So that was, since arrival in the UK, probably that was one of the happiest days that I had, of the happiest days, wow. to anyway. know that I will be studying at Cambridge.
2: That's amazing. And how did your parents react when you told them the news?
1: Well, everybody was over the moon. Everybody knew. Um, when I called my parents, I said, oh, um, uh, I've got admitted to Cambridge. They didn't know what Cambridge University, <laughs> what Cambridge <Yeah>. University <laughs> was. And they said, "Oh, well done, son. We knew you would make it." <laughs> and that was it.
2: So, can you tell us about life at Cambridge? Did you mm-hmm. have people who really inspired you, or um, yeah?
1: Life at Cambridge, um, it's it's very surreal, uh, beautiful. Uh, it's so many emotions put together because on one hand it was one of the first institutes or places that I started my formal education and that was Cambridge so now reflecting back that was quite difficult for me personally Uh, I had uh, brought in um, many issues with me academically because I'd never knew how to learn properly, hmm. uh, but also socially as well. I didn't have any friends, any family members. Yeah. Uh, financially, didn't have any money. And Did you still have PTSD at this point? or I think I was still kind of, uh, yes, I, I was still having that PTSD and anxiety right. as well yeah. at the time. But I had a, a, an amazingly supportive environment around me. Uh, the, the senior tutor, Dr. Bampos, Nick Bampos, who was looking after me at Trinity Hall, uh, and the admissions uh, director of studies, the admission tutor, and the director of studies, uh, Professor John Bradley. So they put their hands around me and they said, you'll be fine. Uh, and although I did struggle in the first two years academically, right. I was trying, still trying to figure out how things would work, uh, they uh, stood by me and they said, no, you will make it. Uh, you'll make it through this. And there were many other ways for me to apply for grants which um those those fungus schemes still exist I believe um, socially a social support was there and and I was beginning to have that friend circle as well and which was down to myself and by the third year I, I uh, uh, did uh, well to recover from all those challenges uh, and um, I was fortunate to get a first for my research project uh, and b- but that's all with the support and the great, Friendly environment yeah. that the Cambridge offers
2: and what was your research project on uh,
1: so I did uh, pharmacology oh, uh, and and my research was within pharmacology Oh, wow.
2: oh lovely and um, and can you um, can you tell us what happened next after you left Cambridge and bring us up up mm-hmm. to speed with where you are today?
1: So after graduating from in 2006, I went to Imperial College in London and yep. that's when I finished my clinical studies. Uh, I also did an elective at Harvard University in America. I was given a scholarship to do my surgical elective there. Okay. Uh, then I became a doctor in 2010. Uh, and that's when actually the beginning of the journey of the global health started. Because my ultimate aim was not just to become a doctor, how to be able to help and i uh, immediately do you mean help in afghanistan as well as back at home and and the uk as well or did you mean sure so one of the aims which was to be able to become a doctor that was achieved Uh, and through that i could help people within the nhs to treat people so that was amazing but i had seen so much suffering so much trauma during my childhood that those memories were still very vivid Uh, So I really wanted to go back and help those people in conflict zones. I didn't know how, but again, I was very determined uh, and took that uh, hope and that uh, dream with me to, to, to Kabul. Afghanistan made many more frequent visits to Kabul. Know, for about four years, right. trying to teach in any way I could, trying to help on the wards in hospital. And I also saw that there were so many other people in the NHS, in the National Health Service UK, they were passionate about helping, but they okay. didn't know how to do it in conflict zones. It was too risky for them to go, and um, taking leave, financial commitments, and so on. Yeah, And then I had to really think hard to find a way how to be able to connect uh, the advanced healthcare system that we have, we're privileged to have in the UK and in many other countries, yeah. to the broken healthcare system in conflict zones and in low-resource settings. And I came across telemedicine in 2014, which existed. Um, some organizations like um, uh, Medicines on Frontier, they were doing it, they still do it. Mm-hmm. But it's more a rigid format that um, you can transmit images or information through uh, laptops or through um, Monitors to each other and the right. specialists can give advice uh, and I tried to initially implement that scheme so I went back to Kabul, Afghanistan and spoke to the Ministry of Public Health and I asked them can you get some monitors and we will, I'll get specialists on the other end uh, they were very helpful and they said yeah we'll try but after about six months or one year nothing happened and and all those equipments would cost a lot of money uh, so it's a funding the funding, funding issue okay. but okay. also a lot of practical aspects of it as well that yeah. you wouldn't need uh, a room, a dedicated office, for somebody to be able to coordinate all these calls yeah. and so on, and it didn't work uh, until I uh, 2015 when I came across um, mobile phones, smartphones, yeah, uh, and the idea just struck with me that when I saw that everybody was using it, everybody was on social media, yeah, and they were using Viber, Skype, WhatsApp, yeah, and I said, "Hang on, can we just tap into that?" And I did some research if other people were doing it. And uh, from my research, I figured out that nobody else was doing it in the world wow. using mobile phones. Right. Um, but that was an extra determination for me. Well, we can be the first to do it. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. Yeah. another kind of uh, I use that as a motivation for myself that if we can do something for the first time, why not just do it? You're talking about for the first yeah. time. What was so groundbreaking about Teleheal? What were some of the things that you, some of the tools that you used? So the groundbreaking thing was... One, it's for the first time we trialled it in the world to do international telemedicine, which is from um, one country to another, one continent to another, on mobile phones. So it's the simplicity, it's the international aspect on mobile phones, uh, and using their specialist advice uh, in, in their free time. Okay. So from on that end, we created groups, which we still have for hospitals, in various uh, parts in Kabul City. That's where we started trialing this program. And back here, I had to um, walk from one hospital to another to recruit doctors, and almost all of them, they said, yes, we will donate uh, our free time on Mm -hmm. smartphones. And then we did the trial. How many countries has it reached now? Is it expanding, or are you still mainly in Afghanistan? So 2015, when we trialed it, piloted with um, five hospitals... After six months when we did surveys, they showed that the work is truly life-saving and it also increases capacity, the education, for the medics over there, but also for the volunteer medics that they can learn from the cases that uh, we bring in or we see in conflict zones. Then we went on from there to expand to all the emergency departments throughout the country in in Afghanistan. In 2017, we started expanding to Syria. Into an international um, independent doctors association in northern Syria, in Aleppo, okay. so we're connected. Then we started our partnership with Health Education England, right. and that was in 2017 as well. And through that, now we are hoping to expand our work to um, Uganda, which we're working on that. Yeah. Uh, are in the West Nile region, there are refugees, around 1.4 million from South Sudan that reside there, so of course wow. they, they have a lot of medical health care needs that need to be catered for. Uh, and we believe that uh, telemedicine the way forward. And we've also expanded South Africa. So okay. we are connected to five hospitals in rural regions. Yeah. And we advise uh, our own health education, our own GP uh, trainees or A&E trainees from the NHS who visit those hospitals for a few month rotation. Yeah. But through helping them, we help the local population
0: and i'm just thinking about in a war torn country like afghanistan was there how much of a sort of brain drain if you call it that was there how much sort of talent left mm-hmm. you know cuz i imagine doctors and things how many sort of stayed and how many sort of left how big was the scale of the problem for
1: mm-hmm. for the medic- medical sector in afghanistan so there's a huge problem, uh, and Afghanistan has been through nearly four decades of war. So I agree, there, there has been a lot of brain drain. Um, many infrastructures uh, were ruined through the war. Uh, so the present government, led by um, uh, His Excellency Dr. Ashrafani and um, His Excellency the CEO of Afghanistan, Dr. Abdullah, have done very well okay. to um, bring in many reforms. But a lot needs to be done. And we have to be realistic in yeah. a country that's been through so much war. And still, there's ongoing war. Of course. Yeah. Um, it will take a lot more time for that. Uh, and the, the the important factor that I have realized is that whether it's medics or any other professionals working in conflicts zones, or law-resource settings, they have a lot of determination. They work extremely hard. Yeah. Although they don't have the fancy resources that we have or the adequate capacity or the resources. But they do put in... and. All those hours, whatever uh, innovative, simple, innovative ways yeah. they can do to help people. So,
0: does that make any complications between what y- you know the practices you have in the UK mm-hmm. and the practices over there? Is it you know more than equipment or anything like that? Is there anything? Does that bring
1: up any new challenges for you? It does, and um, that's one of the interesting challenges that actually yeah. makes um, our specialists think. Right. Of what are the alternative yeah, options? Of and that's one way that they can learn as well that not in every country they have the advanced mri scans that we need so how else for example we can work uh, whilst adhering to the international standards so we we can't drop our standards we have to adhere to wto standards but what are the next step if they don't have that what can we do with what they have so what is there any sort of examples you could sort of give of of those sort of challenges yes we we have got um in, in some instances for example so we, we help people who come in with acute problems right. or uh, just fresh injuries or anything that's new. Yeah. Uh, and they, it's life-threatening. Um, but also cold cases, we call it chronic conditions, okay. when people are suffering from it for, for a while. Right. Yeah. Uh, in instances, for example, um, when there are chronic conditions, they might need some more advanced scans that they don't have in the country then we we advise them on what they can do immediately but what other investigations they need okay for which they unfortunately have to travel somewhere else yeah. but we still report it for them and okay. they can still come back to us and tell us uh, or send us the case uh, again yeah
0: so i'm just thinking as well so I, know, I might be this might be the wrong word is it endemic endemic is the one mm-hmm. sort of regionalized problem mm-hmm. right is there anything that in Afghanistan now that is kind of people taking up a lot of um, resources. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking if that's a, even a relevant question, but, you know, mm-hmm. just something that might not be so prominent here, but over
1: there, it's a regular occurrence. Is there any? Tuberculosis is one of them. Okay, so um, much yes. like what you had in your experience. It, yeah. Indeed. Uh, so I suffered from tuberculosis along with my siblings. Uh, and I went back to the UN in last September. Um, Because of uh, a theme Um, at the UN General Assembly, one day was dedicated for tuberculosis. Right. Uh, So as a stop TB organization that collaborates with the UN as one of their ambassadors, I was invited to go and talk and tell them about innovative ways of how to be able to tackle tuberculosis. Uh, And it affects millions of people. Mm. Actually, one third of the population, if I'm correct from my studies, um, they are infected globally. We don't know about it. Okay. They're one way or another, they're uh, infected with it. And billions of people, they die from it every year. Unfortunately, conflict zones and low-resource settings are the ones which are heavily affected by that. Yeah, of course. But we have to find newer ways, faster ways to do that. And that's where, in my capacity as the NHS um, innovation, I was a fellow last year, uh, okay. clinical entrepreneur fellow, uh, this year I'm uh, Appointed as a lecturer and mentor, Okay. I was brought in new ideas to support what experiments have happened, yeah. what research, but also how we can use telehealth. Uh, what we do, telemedicine, to, to, for example, to train more doctors, how to be able to stop TB easily, mm-hmm. how to read scans easily, and how to follow them up and treatments and so on. And that's when I was privileged to speak in front of heads of state. Uh, as well as presidents and royalties, uh, um, but that's the important point was to tell them the importance of acting. Yeah, so that after the UN General Assembly is finished, so each one of them, when heads of state, when they go to their own countries, that they can approve the policies, yeah. and then the people uh, on on the ground they can implement. Implement.
2: That's amazing. And um, can you? Can you tell us um, what's the future of of Teleheal? Um, Where do you you see Teleheal going? What's your vision?
1: So the vision for Teleheal is that we would like to democratise healthcare access for everybody in the world. Uh, We started with conflict zones, uh, with low resource settings. There are hundreds of millions of people, and they need assistance. Uh, So I think we're just at the start of our journey. Of course, we can't do it on our own. We need more support, we need more financial resources. Uh, We are a charity registered in the UK, so anybody can kindly donate. But also we need more assistance specialist uh, assistance, more partnership with organizations, with academic institute, uh, whether it's research or otherwise. But the bigger vision is that we would like to democratize, we would like to give access to people everywhere in the world to uh, the best healthcare uh, universally.
2: So, um, Mohi, can you tell us um, what's next on the horizon?
1: Well, there are two things. Um, one is the Aryan Global Academy. So it's a new startup. And the second one is the book uh, that I, I'm, I've started uh, writing it. So the Aryan Global Academy, it's a new startup. Uh, and uh, we're about to launch it in the next couple of weeks. It, it consists of uh, an innovation hub. It's a virtual innovation hub. Uh, people with any ideas um, globally they can come to us and then we can advise them how to take their ideas and their products uh, to turn them into missions into organizations and to give them that international traction uh, that they're required to help people so is it more than just a health initiative is it is
0: it covering lots of
1: different fields and research absolutely so it's anything innovative so it's innovation hub is one part of the iron global academy okay but the aim is uh, to help people in the uk uh, in uh, other um, countries in the west but also to help people in low-resource settings as well um for example if people have got brilliant idea in africa Mm -hmm. or somewhere they don't know how to get that penetration into um the market in the UK we can help them with that vice versa Um, I was speaking a while back at the um, Innovation Summit here medtech futures conference there were many people they had brilliant products but they didn't know how to take them globally okay so we will bridge that gap for them because we are connected we partner with many organizations and we support each other and we will give that platform to these companies or individuals to take their their initiatives to another level. So Innovation Hub is one part of it. Mm -hmm. The second part is that we will have uh, weekend seminars. Okay. Uh, We'll start off with the UK, uh, and then we will uh, go international with it. And these weekend seminars one day will be dedicated to uh, personal development, well-being, and communication skills. Um, Resilience, motivation comes into it as well. So we'll be teaching using a model that incorporates science, psychology, uh, sociology, as well as business entrepreneurship skills all yeah. in one and more evidence-based model, as mm-hmm. well as with the help of the uh, experts globally that we, we we can go and ask them to, to help us with that. But also our work will be in line with the UN global goals, again, okay. to provide that education. So that's the first day. The second day is more of uh, professional development Uh, giving him entrepreneurial skills, innovation skills as well as leadership skills of how they can turn their businesses around, their charities around their products around and how to use that resilience and and become better leaders and they can negotiate across the table with ministers with heads of state or speak in front of heads of state and and to be able to uh, again make a difference in the world Great
0: and then, how does that link to your um to your new book? Is there an is there a, a link to that, or is are you right? Is this a biography? Mm.
1: Is this um a, a, a steps guide? Mm. What what is what is the new book? Well, now you're going into my secrets. Um, so the first one is a biography, okay, uh, that I'm working on, um, and there will be another book as well. Okay, and that the second book will be in line with what we do with the academy. Okay,
2: yeah, amazing. So, I'll look yeah.
1: out for that. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and again, with the work we do, whether it's Teleheal with the Aryan Global Academy or the book, is to inspire, to inform, uh, and also to empower people. Uh, and through doing that, I'm personally getting inspired every to talking with you, uh, reflecting on my journey, but also when I see other people's journey, it's all about inspiring each other, informing each other, and learning from each other. Thank you so much
0: taking the time out to do this it's been fascinating spending the afternoon with you it's been great thank you yeah
1: and best of luck with telly heel and all the other projects in the biography yeah yeah really it's impressed. my great pleasure and um, it's always a joy to come back to cambridge